HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Hi, and welcome to Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. We are your hosts, Jenny Goodman and Alex McCreary. Opening Soon is a weekly show that will walk you through the steps of opening a restaurant through conversations with some of the world's greatest chefs, restaurateurs, and the vendors that help take their business from just an idea to opening soon. Jenny and I have been in the hospitality business for over 25 years. I've been fortunate enough to be part of opening one restaurant that still stands today and humbled enough to have owned one restaurant named Goods that lasted less than six months. When launching Goods, we failed to create a business plan before jumping in. We didn't bother with a partnership agreement, and we missed some major components of our income statement. Our experience with Goods is a big reason we feel we're the ones that can ask the questions. Basically, we need answers. Aside from our own firsthand experience inside restaurants, including one pretty epic fail, we are currently the founders of Tillit NYC, a hospitality workwear brand that has proudly outfitted over 4,000 restaurants and counting since launching our business in 2012. We are so fortunate to witness many restaurants come to life. Being part of that journey is one of the best parts of our job, and we want to share that feeling and all those lessons that can be learned with all of you. Our goal is that this podcast will help bridge the gap between the teacher and the student, help alleviate some of the risk when you're opening your restaurant, and offer you some lessons that you might have been looking for when building your business plan. So the first 12 episode season will sequentially take you through the steps of your business plan, from choosing your partners to nailing design and to getting those doors actually open. We will be picking the brains of industry leaders, including Chef Missy Robbins, Camilla Marcus, and Steven Satterfield, just to name a few. So if you're in the process of building a business plan, just starting culinary school, improving or expanding in your current business, or just fascinated by what it takes to get the restaurant open, we hope this podcast will entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey from idea to opening soon. Follow the journey on Heritage Radio and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at WeAreOpeningSoon and at TillItNYC.
This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking about the Economic Research Service uh, and the plans that the USDA has for moving it and its sister agency, NIFA, out of D.C. My uh, guest today is Bryce Oates. Bryce is a writer who covers rural policy, people, places, and politics. Uh, he is a rural policy correspondent for The Daily Yonder, a great publication, by the way, folks, that you can get for free, um, and author of the Medium blog, Rural Policy Diary, as well as being a freelancer for other publications, including our very favorite Civil Eats and Outdoor Life. Welcome to the show, Bryce. Thanks so much for joining me today. Katie, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure, too. So, um, so Bryce, <laughs> let's get right down... <laughs> You know, Bryce, you and I had a conversation yesterday, so now we're old friends and I can just goof around with you, but I'll try not to do that. Hey, I um, love it. So, I prefer. <laughs> so there, there has been, uh, aside from you, uh, there has also been quite a bit of coverage in um, various mainstream papers that probably no one but, um, you know, rural policy geeks like us really pays attention to about the USDA plan to relocate the Economic Research Service, otherwise known as the ERS, and the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, which is a sort of a sister agency within the USDA. And they, uh, the USDA is now planning to move them away from uh, D.C., where they have been for, oh, I don't know, perhaps since they were established. So first of all, can right. you tell uh, the listeners what are these agencies and what do they do? So great. Yeah, um, the Economic Research Service, is one of the leading agencies in the world in providing important research into food and agriculture. Um, it's in the NIFA, National Institute for Food and Agriculture, is the primary mechanism to fund uh, university extension projects, programs, and research for scientists. So you, NIFA is more of a grant agency that scientists and extension agents throughout the country and extension projects throughout the country use for funding. And ERS is really a economic and scientific uh, data-producing machine that all of us as rural reporters and agriculture reporters actually use on a day-to-day basis to fuel our, uh, the data behind our reporting. Uh, right. Economic Research Service today, for instance, uh, sent out a report about the rise in U.S. beef exports, attributing that to the rise in beef exports to South Korea. Now, I'm not a trade economist, and I don't write a ton about those kind of granular details, but many agricultural journalists do, and it's very important information as we're discussing trade issues, et cetera, um, you know, export markets, and the Trump administration's real focus on export markets. Uh, Sonny Purdue's focus on exports as a, you know, as the economic model for uh, agriculture and rural economic development. So that's one example of today. Um, ERS also publishes a very important data set called the farmer's share of the consumer dollar. Uh, the right. farmer's share is used as data to signify corporate control and corporate consolidation within agriculture, particularly in livestock. And, you know, uh, family farm advocates, people who are sustainable agriculture advocates, people who are opposed to concentrated animal feeding operations, livestock factories, um, you know, they use that data to document the change in industry structure away from traditional family farms and pasture-based operations and onto industrial livestock and CAFOs. And so, um, you know, that is a piece of data that I'm sure this administration finds troubling. And uh, But, again, yes. you know, if you're active, if you know people involved in the sort of 
uh, populist, anti-corporate side of agriculture, of which there is a large, large number of farmers and people active in that fight, um, you know, that's very, that information is essential uh, to, to yes. documenting the change in structure. Well, I, I know that I used the ERS data extensively, for example, when I was writing my book about the meat industry. So I, I you know, yeah, I consider them an essential part of, uh, you know, whatever anybody needs to know about row crops and agricultural output in this country. They really yeah. cannot get an accurate picture without the data that Definitely is produced not. by the ERS. So so right. what, why do you think the USDA and Sonny Perdue want to move them out of D.C.? And, and also, why does that matter? I mean, I understand that it's very disruptive to the employees, yeah. of course, but um, doesn't right. it make sense to have the researchers be more geographically close to the farming community? You know, can you explain the pros and cons of this decision? Yeah, so I think I think on the surface of that, um, you know, it, it makes uh, what people like to think of as common sense, probably, right? Right. For an agency to relocate. Um, D.C. is a very, you know, the capital district as a whole is quite expensive place to you know live work and play and uh that is but at the same time there is a uh you know there is a large group of employees that are already there they've they've moved there to get these ERS and EFA jobs they have you know these are people with advanced degrees who have you know wanted to locate in a mission-oriented way uh into DC and serve their nation these are civil servants who have you know uh, exchange the higher incomes of the private sector to to serve we the people, and you know they've made that choice. So, I mean, to disrupt it, uh, there's also not been any presentation of data from USDA that uh, this effort, this relocation, would actually save money because um, it's going to right. be you know the transition costs are going to be et cetera. One of the key points here is that USDA hasn't been very transparent nor have they been forthcoming with any data for the need to make this move. Uh, there's really no one calling for it <laughs> outside of Secretary Purdue and people inside of USDA. The nation's research universities, um, the state-based land grants, uh, the 1890s you know, have traditionally served African-Americans and, and uh, majority-minority communities. Those... Uh, those people are opposed to these moves at ERS and NISA, uh, as are uh, many politicians. Uh, the, during the Farm Bill debate, there was um, language in the bill that uh, Senator Stabenow from Michigan, Democrat, had put in um, you know, to oppose this relocation effort and reorganization effort altogether. There's been a ton, you know, a ton of feedback, the, uh, pushback. The American Statistical Association, which is a leading scientific and uh, research agency that supports good data and driving public policy. They're opposed to this. Um, almost every former head of ERS, both from Republican and Democratic administrations, are opposed to this. I think uh -huh. the case, the simplest case for making <laughs> that the employees have expressed to me at ERS, as well as the union representative I spoke with, is that, you know, they need to be there. This is a mission-oriented company to provide data and feedback and be readily available for our Congress people and staff as they, you know, make important decisions about U.S. agriculture policy, rural policy, and food policy. And trade policy, right? I mean, that's also factors. And into trade it. policy, yeah. 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 So 
so there's really it's really just a question of Sonny Purdue and his uh you know and the the guy who runs who used to be the um you know the the cabana operator at uh, one of Trump's golf courses. I mean, you oh, know the right, staff right, yes. at the USDA is just so shocking. Anyway, but I mean, so they've they've decided that this makes sense, and they claim that it's a cost saver. And yet, no, according to Shelley Pingree and Steny Hoyer, there has been no cost benefit analysis for this. So it's right. really it's just a, a kind of an art what appears to be an arbitrary move, and we're going to dissect in a minute. Um, why that arbitrary move might appear to be appealing to the Trump administration. But in the meantime, uh-huh. you mentioned uh, speaking to a union rep. And um, so it turns out that the staff and the two agencies are considering unionization. I didn't even know you could do that as a civil servant. But what what will that <laughs> do for them? What Why would unionizing become, uh, you know, a, a, a power lever for uh, for the agencies in which they could conceivably push back against this arbitrary move? Yeah, great question. I think there are really three elements as to how why the ERS employees have turned to unionization to uh, advance their pushback against the Trump administration's moves. Uh, number one is the uh, Trump budgets, the Secretary of Purdue budgets, have repeatedly proposed slashing ERS employees as well as uh, calling for this relocation so uh, the budget proposals themselves out of the Trump administration are, you know, calling for job losses in the IRS and also decreased levels of funding. So that's one, uh-huh. one point. Uh, second is there have been changes as to how the employees are uh, allowed to do their jobs and, and proposals to do more. So in other words, traditionally, scientists and researchers are part of a uh, research community, whether that's economists, soil scientists, uh, agronomists, um, social scientists that cover demographic change and racial makeup of rural communities. And though, you know, there there have been restrictions put on uh, how that research is rolled out into journals within their particular field. This is a definite case, especially within those covering climate science and climate change and and climate disruption. And so uh, there have been employees who have expressed uh, change in their ability to to submit reports, to make those reports, particularly on climate issues. Wow. And what I read in your article is that they now have to submit all their reports to, to, is it Sonny Perdue directly or somebody that he designates before they are even allowed to send them out to the journals in which they normally publish their reports? That was described to the union representative, Peter Lynch, yes, by some ERS employees. Um, I've also had conversations with people that, that let me to believe that, yes, off the record. Wow. So, so uh, this is essentially yeah. suppressing suppressing information. And then there's a corollary to that because I think I read in your article in the Daily Yonder, which is part of the Weekly mm-hmm. Yonder, um, Right. Didn't you also report that the rep- if a report were published, it would go out with a certain yeah. caveat that the USDA does not necessarily support the findings of their research or something similar to that? Can you explain what that is? Yes, exactly. The Washington Post actually uncovered a memo that directed ERS employees and other USDA uh uh, responses to calls for requests for requests on scientific journals, 
that that they would put preliminary stamp it with preliminary publication, and that the USDA had not reviewed or found the credibility of these <sighs> papers under their submission. So uh, this administration seems to not understand how the whole scientific and research publication process works. It's, it's very disturbing. Right, because I mean, normally speaking, if if a if an if say a public a report comes out from the ERS and it is published to a journal of some you know mm-hmm. obvious credibility and repute, and then if that right. report turns out to have uh, inaccurate data, then there's a lot of pushback from the community that reads those journals. Correct? I mean, like they would be, they would definitely be corrected on the record, as it were. Uh, by other scientists reading those reports, right? Right. What you're describing is the scientific data collection and dissemination process. And, you know, that's how this all works, right? A, a researcher does a study, submits it to a journal, her his peers, pick it apart, look at it, make sure the data is credible, make sure the process is credible. And, you know, um, that's how work is elevated or not. There are, you know, conference presentations all over the country, you know, within these various fields. And that's how data and researchers share information and build the public knowledge that is essential for our democracy. And, you know, to, to, to change that, to, to uh, you know, whether that be health research or, or food research or farming research, you know, we, we need yeah. to keep investing in the United States in, you know, our leading science and research fields. Um you know, many people agree with that as an approach to keeping the economy strong and, you know, having a more educated workforce, et cetera. But this administration doesn't seem to want to do that. Uh, they certainly don't want to find, put resources into it, and that's very disturbing. It's very disturbing, Bryce. Now, in your article in the Weekly Yonder, or rather the Daily Yonder, you also reported that the ERS would be moved to a different department of the USDA. And I know you referenced that at the beginning of the show, but right. why would they re- Why would they take it out of sort of the research and science aspect? And, and I think the proposal is to put it into a more economic aspect of the USDA. I didn't quite understand that. Yeah, okay. So here, here we go. This is only for uh, policy and data nerds to get concerned about, but it is significant. So I'll try to, <laughs> I'll try to go slow. Uh, Okay, so uh, currently, uh, ERS is underneath the agency of the REE office, which is the office of the chief scientist at USDA. Okay, and and that provides a layer of protection and or a firewall, really, that establishes mm-hmm. scientific credibility amongst researchers. So that those these things we're talking about, you know, submission of okaying of research um, from the political people. You know, that's, that's right now this organization is under REE, and that, again, establishes credibility and it keeps the civilian service corps that these researchers are part of as separate from that political process, more or less. Um, ah, I see. Now, okay. by moving them under, now, the proposal is to move them directly under the chief economist who works directly with the Secretary of Agriculture, so that the administration in charge of the Secretary of Agriculture could, um, you know, be more in control of what's put out in terms of research, et cetera. Could, could, you so know, it's just another way of controlling of, the data and the way the data is disseminated. Right. And, you know, honestly, Unbelievable. Uh, you know, this is a, this is a complicated situation, but this is happening in other sectors, too. I tend to cover um, USDA primarily, but I also work a lot with Department of Interior. There are very similar proposals happening in Department of Interior. 
Really? Um, there are similar wow. proposals happening throughout the scientific community and with data and research, the EPA, um, Department of Health and Human Services. You know, the Trump administration has proposed budget cuts, uh, all kinds of so-called government reforms, and they even want to consolidate the very robust data set that these statistical agencies put out. So ERS is one of, including the Bureau of Labor Statistics that does all that monthly job data and unemployment reporting, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which does macroeconomic data and analysis about, you know, exports, the health of the economy, where things, you know, what industries are doing well, what industries are doing poorly. And so the, the, those agencies work as a check and balance way to provide the highest quality data in the world uh, about economic trends. We don't do a ton, you know, uh, the, uh, we're not number one at a lot of things in the United States anymore, but we are number one in uh, uh, good data and statistical information. You know, the Census Bureau, of course, is going through this sort of debate right now. Should we have a, you know, a census that is the most highly scientific and credible we can, or, you know, do they want to muddy the process up with political uh, diatribes, you know, such as the question about Patrick uh, Morgan and, you know, are you a legal citizen on the census bureau? Right, right. So let, let's talk a little bit about who uses that data that is generated by the ERS. I mean, isn't it a, basically a neutral organization, or it was? Um, you know, obviously, oh, it's, they're trying to make it into something other than that. But, but I mean, okay. don't both Democrats and Republicans need that information in order to form policy? I mean, I'm trying to, you know, like get to the sort of like I don't I just find it incomprehensible why they would want to pull the teeth of something that provides <laughs> such useful and valuable data to you know anybody well, no, I mean, who is involved in I making policy. So yeah, why aren't the everyone... Republicans pushing back against this? I mean, surely some of them have a conscience. Yeah, and well, I think they have a conscience. Yes, and I think uh, this probably and uh, you know this is probably not popular amongst Republican. Uh, conventional or historical pre- Republicans. I mean, I'm sure that Charles Grassley uh, is uh, opposed to this move. Yes, I would think so. I mean, I'm thinking about Grassley specifically. I mean, all of the guys yeah. who were from farming states, I mean, even the appalling Stephen King must appreciate, you know, the value of this information. I, you know, why is it not being, um, you know, why are they not making more of a fuss about this? I'm not going to give Steve King the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> but but uh, uh but uh look this is uh, another trend that we're seeing and it's unfortunate that even you know republicans are not willing to stand up uh to a president who is a president and 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 do the information i mean i agree with, with you but you know this is a much bigger problem than just this one question of course if, it, if, it, if we have seen republicans consistently uh, you know, be opposed to something the Trump administration has done. The budgets are another huge example. Well, they just go ahead and go on with their day and ignore it. Instead, they need to be pushing back as well. If they want to save economic research service and NIFA, and many of them do, then they have to participate in politics too, not just ignore problems in their own party. And so, I mean, basically, I just think, I mean, the ERS data is, is so robust. Uh, you know, if you want to know population trends, if you want to know demographic changes, if you want to, like last week, they submitted a report about um, food waste in grocery stores. You know, what is the most common fruit that is, you know, is wasted by pounds of by value? 
I mean, did you know that pineapple was the most wasted fruit in the United States in grocery stores? No, Bryce, I did not know that. And I just bought a <laughs> well, pineapple. Well, don't waste it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're not going to waste it. But, you know, some people do, apparently. I am going, I'm not going to waste my pineapple. I love pineapple, but I, yeah, I mean, I, that's fascinating. I'm actually going to look that report up myself and publish it, uh, with a, with a, one of my, one of my right. new gigs, but I, you know what? We're going to take a short break right this minute and we're going to come right back with Bryce Oates. We're going to talk more about moving the ERS and why the Trump administration is, uh, suppressing economic, the economic research services. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The Virtual Agritourism Conference will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available for purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2019 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Okay, we're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking to Bryce Oates on the line. He's published a very interesting article in The Daily Yonder, which is the daily part of The Weekly Yonder, which is a wonderful uh, newspaper that is online and which uh, describes what's going on out in the rural communities around the nation. Um, And we're talking about the Economic Research Service. So one of the things that you mentioned in the first part of the show was that the USDA had significantly pared down the budget for both uh, the both the Economic Research Service and uh, NIFA, which is the national, I don't know, what is it? Tell me again. National like, Institute uh, food, for Food and Agriculture. National Institute of Food go. and Agriculture, right? Yep, that's it. Yeah, so what? talk about the funding differences between now and the previous administrations. Well, uh, the, budget, uh, the budget situation is really unique. The Trump administration has proposed cuts. I follow the budget costs as well. The Trump administration, each of the three years, has proposed budget cuts as much as uh, 15 to 21 percent, depending on the year, the USDA across the board. Uh, you know, many, many, many millions of dollars of those cuts are in research and both NIFA and through ERS that they have proposed. Um, to get into the weeds of the numbers doesn't make a lot of sense because Congress, uh, you know, has ignored the president's budget and advice every single year. We'll continue to do so. Um, you know, they're all saying, hey, look, that budget is dead on the water every year. Um, so basically, the Trump administration has outsourced their budget-making process 
to a lot of think tanks, conservative and libertarian think tanks, like Heritage Foundation, um, like the Republican Study Committee, which yeah. is part of the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Patriot movement or the, the uh, uh, Tea Party movement, et cetera. So the Tea Party Republican Policy Shop. So basically those are the uh, ideas that the Trump administration uses. The budget is handed over to Congress, and Congress just starts over and does what they're going to do anyway. Right. So they haven't, they have not succeeded in, in extracting too much money from either of these agencies. Because as you said before, the National Institute for Food and Agriculture is a granting right. agency. So I would think it would be kind of important to maintain the level of funding for that agency since it does support agricultural, uh, you know, efforts around the country. Well, you probably support... Maybe we should talk a little bit about more about what kind of grants they have and what they okay, do. Good. Um, again, if people are familiar with um, the land-grant university system and the 1890 university system and sure. how that works. You know, every state has one or two agricultural schools and colleges. Um, they're called land-grants because yes. those agency, those institutions were funded with uh, through federal land-grants and the railroad development and other forms of natural resource extraction. And so um, the, the those state universities often have housed within them uh, university extension agents. And so those are direct uh, assistance for farmers in almost every county in the nation and for rural people and projects. They're uh -huh. the primary engine behind. So they have nutrition and uh, cooking sort of agents. They have soils and, and agronomy agents. They have livestock specialists. Um, they have 4 youth specialists all over the country. And so those people are employed by the states and the state university systems as extension. But they also get a lot of funding for research and for ongoing operational costs from the federal government, too. So it's really a state-federal partnership that pulls off these, you know, big research universities and scientists. And, you know, that's just a critical part of the funding of the food supply. You mentioned that, you know, how could anyone be against uh, say university extension science and research. Well, I mean, I think that's a great question, but obviously, you know, the private the privatization, uh, you know, is something that Republicans have regularly proposed as a so-called cost savings measure, um, you know, for taxpayers. And I, I mean, I would yeah. I would say they're wrong, but uh, you know, they're wrong to have that approach because I believe the public sector continues to provide excellent quality service, you know, even though we don't talk about ERS and ESO a lot. Now, they continue to provide excellent service and research, and we shouldn't kill something that, uh, you know, shouldn't privatize something just to, you know, just to kill it off. That seems to be the strategy here. Interesting. And another thing that, that um, thank you for that. I, another thing that interested me in your piece was uh, you mentioned something called USDA Climate yeah. Hubs. And I, I wondered if that was part of that NEFA, part of the NEFA programming. Like, basically, uh, how, well, first of all, how do they figure into this picture and what, what kind of information do they okay. offer to both the ERS and NEFA that would make them sort of an essential part of the equation? All right, so um, th this is, again, a little bit of uh, policy nerdery, but USDA climate homes were established in the Obama years um, as a way for researchers and scientists and conservationists and advocates who are interested in addressing uh, changing climate through human influence on the climate via carbon emissions and other kinds of greenhouse gas emissions 
they could get together and pull together the best research to localize the prospects for likely climate changes and risks in the various parts of the country. Uh, New England has its own climate hub. Uh, the Southeast does. The Southern Great Plains does. The Northern Great Plains, the Pacific Northwest, and California all have their own uh, USDA climate hubs. Now, climate, the climate hub concept was really just uh, to get the best researchers together, whether they're NASA employees or uh, extension agents or um, university professors who who worked on these issues. So they weren't really, um, you know, they were a different type of effort, a partnership between agencies and between uh, state and federal workers. I see. And uh, so they weren't necessarily just a strictly separate thing. Now, that said, um, you know, the climate hub research and reports are still out there, but they're really not that active. Um, the Trump administration, of course, has uh, actively worked to suppress climate data and research in many ways. I see it every year when they release their proposed budget at USDA. Um, you know, there were an enormous number of grants and research directives and other things about climate um, in the last Obama budget under Tom Vilsack as secretary. That changed quickly uh, when the Trump administration got in, and climate is almost never mentioned. It's certainly never mentioned in the context of a climate change and risk. Um, And certainly there are no Trump administration proposals for investing in climate research and data at USDA. So... uh, and yet, and yet, we are seeing like the record floods, the record fire, you know, fires. Right. I mean, all of the uh, extreme weather events which are going on, even as we right. speak, in the Great Plains. You know, I, I just don't understand not, you know, I, not wanting to get all of that sort of climate information. Well, I mean, okay. I know I'm, I know this sounds silly, and I sound like a fool saying like I don't understand, but I don't understand. It's like where are the cooler heads here? Like who is? It's so frustrating. It's like really common sense has completely disappeared from the body politic. It's just, it is completely insane what is oh, happening. Is and like I said, I just, I really think, you know, I mean, you clearly believe in science. And, you know, many people within the Trump I do. I believe still. in science. I do. <laughs> I was taught that. Yeah, of course. I mean, it seems <laughs> it's not just a blind faith. It's like science is right. science. I right. mean,. Assuming that you know who has paid for that report, I should say. I mean, to be honest, Bryce, I mean, come on. There's a lot of science that does get skewed depending on whoever paid for whatever that report is. I mean, that's been demonstrated over and over again. I mean, the whole Monsanto, you know, those Monsanto trials that have been going on about glyphosate, for example, are a perfect example of how, how, you know, somebody paid for a report that got skewed to, you know, to, to favor the entity that paid for it. So that... I think it's I think it's fair to say that science can be skewed. Well, of course, well, but I I think it's also right to say that uh, you know people who work in the civil service, uh, as the people in the ERS do or NEFA, are not people who are being paid to skew scientific reports. Would you say that was a fair assessment? I mean, right. I, I hesitate to be too too partisan, even though I am totally. You know, I mean, it's like let's try to keep some balance here. <laughs> no, no, I understand. I would say that. Um... You know, I would say that that's the reason why public sector science should be supported and, you know, to limit corporate and yes, absolutely. And power. And I would say that, um, you know, it should be a transparent process. Neither are the case with the current Republican yes. administration. You know, when, when science isn't transparent, 
nor is it, you know, somehow involved in the public sector so that we can get that transparency. You know, it's, it's, it's very difficult um, to, to, you know, figure anything out. I mean, I just believe that, that, you know, scientists know what they're doing. And again, I work closely with these civil servants you know, all across the government wide, you know, whether they be uh, municipal employees, whether they be county employees, whether they be state employees. Sure. And these are the dedicated public servants that America needs to be lifting up. And they're doing great work out there in conservation, soil conservation. A lot of climate change work is happening on the state and local levels, too. And it was at the federal level. We're losing right. progress in, in, you know, in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, studying the problem, trying to figure out and get ourselves organized for when, you know, when weather, weather events increase in size and scale, and that's what's happening. And the IRS could tell us that, you know, if they had uh-huh. a robust budget and more. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier in the show was uh, the farmer's share of the consumer dollar, and um, that's the kind of research that does come out of yeah. the ERS. Why don't you describe the most recent report? I bet most people would be pretty surprised to hear how much money the d- farmer is making uh, when it comes to um, return on okay, investment. Okay, so how many uh, dollar that the U.S. consumer spends on groceries, uh, less than 15 cents, 14 and some change, cents of that goes to the farmer's pocket. Now, that farmer has... Now, 14, and se- 14 cents... Yeah. 14 point something cents on the dollar is what goes to each farmer for milk, for grains, for, you know, meat. Now, the good thing about... I mean, that sounds about right for the meat industry, actually. Um, (laughs) I don't know the other ones. Now, that does vary widely, right? I mean, that's about the average. But, like, for instance, when you go to commodity bones production, like, say, wheat and bread... You know, it's less than one cent, frankly. It goes back to the farmer. So there's that level of detail by commodity from some of that ERS data that's important, right? Because not every industry is the, is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the – I just track it all the time. Who's taking that farmer share of the consumer dollar? You know, is it the retailer? Is it the processor? Um, you know, is it the meat packer? You can, right. you can uh, look at a story over time. And you'll see that the value, uh, the portion that farmers earn in their consumer dollar, you know, in the last 30 years has gone from around 40 cents to now, you know, just under 15. And, you know, that's a changing Wow, industry. from 40 cents to 15. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is a stack. And people wonder why we're, you know, why we're in a crisis with the farming community. And there, there's the answer right, right there. And so uh, just to take this on a little bit of okay. a tangent here, because we've, we've, you know, basically gone through a lot of the questions I wanted to ask you. But um, from your knowledge, both as a farmer and a reporter, um, what what would be the magic bullet uh, for changing that ratio? What, what do you think would do the most to uh, secure a little more money for the farmer uh, and a little less money, f- or, you know, just secure a little more money for the farmer, never mind who would get less. Okay, um, well, there's two major places I would move. We're just talking about farm economy and 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 change that I'd like to see. Um, first would be a group of, of antitrust and competitive markets legislation that, um, you know, like Elizabeth Warren yeah. and Bernie Sanders have brought about. Um, you know, those things are like banning meat packers yeah. from owning livestock. Um, 
limiting agribusiness mergers yeah. for the next couple of years while we can figure out what's happening with the problem, have a public discussion about it. It's uh, basically all the kinds of things that farmers and farm groups proposed as part of the Obama administration's um, competition and uh, market fairness listening tour they did during the process. Now, that, that unfortunately didn't amount to anything, but there were lots of good... No, I was just going to say, they didn't really do anything for farmers with all that talk about, you know, know your farmer, know your food, right, right, and right. blah, blah, blah. Nothing, I mean, the big those big mergers happened under the Obama right, right. watch, no problem. Right, right. So, uh, you know, it's, it goes back a long way. It goes back to Reagan right. and Thatcher. Let's just admit right, right. that. Well, I mean, I think that, <laughs> I think definitely. But I think in aggressive, you know, uh, look at what's called the Packers and Stockyards Act, 1921, we're ready to... You know, revise yeah. that, refine it, and that could deal help with market power, right? I think that would help with markets and with market fairness and basically market data information. That's one group. The second group of policies that are most important are those that are the farm programs and the federal farm bill. Now, um, you know, I think that uh, farmers, like all working people in America, should get a floor price or a minimum wage, basically, for the things that they produce. Now, that requires the government to institute New Deal-type agricultural policies, uh-huh. uh, which uh, have supply chain management, supply management of certain commodities, and floor prices for crops, and then yeah. have the uh, grain actually uh, owned on the farm by the farmers. It's called the farmer-owned grain reserve. So if you took that approach, you know, the traditional New Deal approach to, you know, it's called parity uh, by many groups, parity policies. So, so yes. that would be supportive of it would provide a market mechanism to protect the prices for corn growers, soybean growers, wheat growers, cotton growers, rice growers, you know, uh, dairy farmers, etc. Sure. All of those commodities. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm hoping. I mean, I think Bernie Sanders apparently released today a big package of agrarian, <clears throat> excuse me, of agrarian reform, right. which I haven't no, had a chance I to read either, yet, but yeah. you probably have. <laughs> And it's 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 interesting that this is now we have to wrap it up in a second. But this it's to me, it's fascinating that, you know, last in the last election cycle, there was a deafening silence uh, about agriculture and, you know, sort of any of these issues that we're talking about market concentration and and establishing, uh, you know, base prices or whatever, um, supply chain management and so forth. But uh, now it's it's all about that. And I, I think that's a really interesting and great development for the you know rural economy. Right. Um, right. What else do I want to say about that? Nothing. You go ahead. No, no, I just <laughs> I hope that um, you know, there's a lot of uh, reporting about that. There is an interesting debate happening amongst uh, people who align themselves on the Democratic-ish side. Some are independents, some are further to the left, so-called. Uh, between this approach and between sort of the Tom Vilsack approach, which was, well, I don't really talk about corporate so much, uh, maybe give some money to local food systems and just kind of carry on. Um, you know, the Obama right. administration approach right. versus, you know, a more aggressive approach like Warren and Sanders have offered up. Um, and I'm sure that others are supportive of too. I mean, I know like Kristen Gillibrand had, you know, uh, developed some dairy policy that needs these needs. There's a lot of good ideas out there in the, in the democratic field, and there's going to be a very, very robust debate about the so-called moderates, um, and they're moderate on some issues versus the so-called, you know, uh, socialist left, which you know wants to do crazy things like uh, yeah. provide fair prices for for corn. <laughs> 
to grill our stuff. Right. <laughs> I know that crazy stuff, like baking things yeah, fair. Yeah. yeah, I know. Well, I don't think you even should call it socialism. It's just, that's just the label that the, the no, right no, wing likes it. to put on everything that they don't like, apparently. Um, listen, Bryce, we got to wrap it up, but this is your moment to promote yourself shamelessly. Oh. Where can people <laughs> find more about you and what you do? Well, and read yeah, more great. of your work. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Glad to be here. Most of my work is published at the Daily Wander. Uh, I also write occasionally for uh, Civil Leaps and Outdoor Life. I primarily cover uh, rural issues of all kinds, rural economic trends. But my main uh, interest is the nexus of agriculture, climate change, and inequalities in, in both racially and economically. No, we're going to have to talk about that another time. We, I never talk about racial inequality and, and sort of the way uh, people of color are basically screwed out of the food system. Okay, so it would be nice to have somebody who actually knows something about those issues about which I am shamefully and woefully well, ignorant. I'll come so, back anytime. But thank you very much for explaining this today. I, you know, I hope people really continue to follow this because it is, it is kind of uh, you know, just the spearhead of an assault on, on information that is taking place in this country that I find find extremely troubling absolutely um along with the fact that trump is now saying that he feels like he should get two years of do-over because of the Mueller investigation uh, it doesn't ever stop <laughs> yeah terrifying terrifying anyway thank you so much uh for joining me today bryce i really appreciate it thanks to my sponsor and thanks of course to the wonderful matt my engineer and uh see you next week folks with another great show thanks for tuning in bye-bye for now Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening.